We are in the midst of a new sexual revolution in our society. And uh, if you think about it, it's amazing to consider how much has changed just within the past 10 to 15 years. For example, in 2008, when President Obama was running for the presidency, he stated his opposition to same-sex marriage which may surprise many of you. He supported civil unions and the, and the rights for same-sex couples to be together, but did not support same-sex marriage and did not publicly and formally announce his support of state-recognized same-sex marriages until 2012. And from there, of course, things expedited quite rapidly. In 2015, on June 26, the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. And since that day, we were told that nearly 300,000 same-sex couples have entered into an official state-recognized union. Also since then, we've, we've seen many churches who are now allowing same-sex ministers, members, and marriages. We've seen a significant move in our society that demands really that everyone accept same-sex relationships and marriages without exception from wedding cake bakers to educators to politicians and even pastors. And our glossary of terms has expanded quite rapidly as well with a new alphabet presented to us that is LGBTQIA+. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersexual, and asexual plus with more letters and identifications added to this spectrum every single year. It has been a rapid move over the past 10 to 15 years to develop what is now a new sexual revolution. The question is, how should Christians respond to this and how should we navigate these very challenging days? What should we believe and how should we present our truth, the truth of God to the world today? Because there's disagreement over what is actually true and then there's been inconsistency in the response. And so today I wanna present just a couple of different aspects of this conversation to us for our consideration and application. First of all, I think it's important for us to evaluate some common arguments that are in favor of same-sex relationships in our culture. It's important for us to know what's being said and what's being presented for us to be able to navigate that effectively and to think about these things rightly. Then I want us to think about some common approaches to same-sex attraction in the church. And then finally, we will talk about a biblical view, a godly view of same-sex attraction, same-sex relationships, and how the church should move forward in the days to come. But let me start with some common arguments for same-sex relationships in our culture, because there, there are many arguments that are presented to us, and some of them uh, can be convincing, at least to those who are, are not thinking through these issues critically. The, the number one argument I hear is that if human relationships don't negatively impact others, people should be permitted to do whatever they want. This is what I call the modern golden rule. 
You know, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Like the modern golden rule has become, if what I'm doing doesn't infringe upon what you're doing, then what I'm doing is okay. But there's, a, there's an implicit problem with this argument. Namely, not everything that we can do without infringing on others is good or beneficial for us to do. And so if we live by this axiom that what I'm doing, as long as it doesn't negatively impact what you're doing, should be permitted for me to do, then we're going to allow a whole lot of things into our lives and a whole lot of things into our society that we know are not good for any of us. Things like alcoholism or drug abuse. I don't know of anyone who says, no, you can be an alcoholic to the point where you can kill yourself as long as you don't allow your alcoholism to infringe negatively upon someone else. We don't apply this to, to incest or polygamy and say, well, as long as your incest or polygamy can be safely done in an environment where it doesn't infringe on someone else and it's good to do. No, we understand those things are not good for anyone. And so the problem with the modern golden rule is that there are many places it breaks down because I think we understand just because you can do something without negatively infringing on someone else doesn't mean that you should. It doesn't mean that it's good for you. It doesn't mean that it's good for our society, but that's a common argument. Secondly, I've heard this, that, well, the natural world has examples of homosexual behavior, and therefore, you see, it's, it's okay for humans to practice. The fact that we see some examples in the natural world is evidence that it's normal. The problem with this argument is is that there are numerous abnormalities in nature that we don't use to justify human behavior. I used to have a dog that I loved until I watched this dog eat her own poop one day. And that radically changed how I viewed her. And the next time she came to give me a kiss, I was not interested. We know dogs eat their own vomit. We know that male hippos kill their firstborn males. We know, this is my favorite example of abnormalities in nature, by the way, that female praying mantises kill their male mates after mating, which if we applied to the human spectrum would radically change how we look at honeymoon. (laughs) And so we don't, we, we, we don't go to praying mantises and say, see, we have an example of this and therefore it's okay for human beings. No, the reality is there are numerous abnormalities in nature like homosexual behavior that should not be used to justify human behavior for this reason. We know that because of the presence of sin and brokenness in the world today, that even nature and the creation itself is broken. And thus there are abnormalities that were not originally so. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. You see, even the natural world around us is negatively impacted through the presence of sin and brokenness. In other words, our whole world is broken and we can't use abnormalities in nature to justify normalities in human behavior. 
Third, we see this argument, and I totally understand this, that the Bible is inconsistent with condemnations and punishments of certain behaviors, particularly in the Old Testament. I totally understand where people are coming from here. For someone who doesn't understand the nature of Old Testament law, someone who doesn't understand uh, national Israel and the progression of both law and uh, God's design for Israel, it, it can look like, well, the Bible is just inconsistent when it comes to condemnations and punishments. And in the same way, that we don't give children the death sentence anymore for, for perpetual disobedience. We also don't condemn homosexuality. That's the argument. We don't embrace all the food laws and, and, and we don't embrace the Bible's teaching on, on sexuality. I totally understand where people could be confused on this. But let me say two things here. First of all, even those people who accept this argument recognize that some of the Old Testament is applicable and pertinent. Even the sections that talk about same-sex attraction in relationships. Let me give you a prime example in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 includes a strong statement opposing homosexuality or same-sex relationships. And, and critics say, well, you can't, you can't trust it because of of, 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 of all of the other crazy laws and condemnations, right? But, but look at Leviticus 18, verses six and seven, and, and, and you could go on from there, by the way, but this is just one example. Here's what the scripture says. You must never have sexual relations with a close relative, for I am the Lord. Do not violate your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother, and you must not have sexual relations with her. Now that seems obvious. No one would disagree with that. But just a few verses later, the scriptures say, same chapter, same place, same set of instructions, do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, it is a detestable sin. And so even within this context, I think people fail to understand that God is addressing morality and sexual morality here and where these people would accept part of the law, they're trying to reject other aspects of it by pointing to an overall inconsistency. But secondly, let me speak to this overall inconsistency because in my view, as you study the Bible, what you learn is that the Bible is not inconsistent, but especially when you go to the Old Testament, you see different aspects of the law that's given to national Israel. And that's really, really, really important. You see the law that was given to national Israel. That's important, not to us right, not to Gentiles, to national Israel, a, a, a nation governed by God directly initially and then by various kings later on. Okay, national Israel was unique and God gave them three types of law. He gave them civil law that governed national Israel. Those laws do not apply to us because we are not national Israel. Secondly, God gave them ceremonial law that governed their worship. They were initially a nation governed by God. And so they had laws pertaining to their worship. Some of those laws pertain to their diet and their food. They had civil and ceremonial laws that do not apply to us. That's where people get tripped up. They look at these civil laws or these ceremonial laws and they say, yes, look, none of this applies to us. But then they go to the third category, which is the moral law. 
And they say, we'll see there, yeah, that, that doesn't apply to us either. But here's the difference. No, the moral law that is given to Israel is also reiterated in other places throughout the Old Testament into the ministry of Jesus and throughout the New Testament church. These are laws that relate to all peoples in all places in all contexts. The moral law of God is affirmed throughout all generations and and the moral law of God is given for our good. And so here's what happens. There are people who get confused and they say, okay, yes, we don't carry out these consequences for these sins anymore uh, in the way that Israel did. And therefore we we don't condemn same-sex relationships or or, or other aspects of of, of modern behavior that, that, that people want to accept. And, and we completely, those people completely misunderstand the nature of Old Testament law. No, we, we, no one's claiming who knows the Bible that we try to live under the civil and ceremonial laws of Israel. What we are simply saying is that the moral law was given to all people in all places, in all circumstances. And that's really, really important. In other words, the Bible is consistent, okay? And then fourth, let let me just give you another argument that's tied to this. I hear this a lot, man. This is really, really common that, that, well, Jesus did not address homosexuality specifically. And and again, I think this is a, a, just a gross misunderstanding of the, of the ministry of Jesus. Listen, there, there are some who recognize the, the nature of Old Testament law who have moved away from trying to justify homosexuality on the basis of the Old Testament and have simply said, well, Jesus trumps the Old Testament law and, and Jesus never talked about it. And, and frankly, there are some churches who are arguing this. Well, Jesus never said anything directly, but of course that's an argument from silence. And to suggest, first of all, that Jesus never directly said something about homosexuality is an argument from silence. It's a very, very weak argument. And then secondly, I would argue actually Jesus does cover a broader teaching on sexuality and specifically same-sex attraction and relationships in Matthew 19, 5, when he's talking about marriage. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Jesus clearly affirms that marriage is a union between one man and one woman for life. And so it, it's not fair to suggest that just because Jesus did not give a specific statement on homosexuality that he would support it, encourage it, or condone it because arguments from silence are the weakest arguments that we could ever present. And to assume that Jesus would accept same-sex relationships is, is a wrong assumption, not consistent with his teaching on marriage. Furthermore, I would, I would just remind you that when you come to the Bible, okay, every single word of this is the word of Jesus, Amen. right? Every single word is the word of Jesus. So I know we have red letter Bibles and in black letter Bibles. And I'm actually not a red letter Bible fan. I mean, it's fine if you have them and buy them, it's all good. But I'm just saying, I, I just, I, I'm okay if you have a red letter Bible, as long as you understand this, there's a sense in which every single letter is red letter. Are you with me? Every single word of this is the word of Jesus. The inscripturated words of Paul are the words of Jesus. The inscripturated words of Moses are the words of Jesus. I know we put the words of Jesus, he spoke while he was on the earth in red, but 
Every word of this is a word given to us in red. And, and therefore, what I'm trying to suggest is that, that the Bible is consistent in its witness regarding sexuality and marriage and God's design. And so these cultural arguments that you hear, some of them I completely understand. There, there is confusion. There is a lack of education. There's a lack of training, sadly, even in churches. But when you look at each of these arguments and you come to the truth of God's word, which we talked about a few weeks ago, what you find is that homosexuality is inconsistent with God's design, okay? And I'll, I'll flesh that out as we go. So, so there's definitely confusion in our culture, but let me move to the church because I also believe there's been over the years, great confusion in the church. And so not only should we evaluate some common approaches to same-sex attraction in our culture, we also need to think through how the church has navigated this issue in the past because frankly, I don't think the church in general in the United States has done a very good job of addressing it. In other words, there's a lot of misunderstanding in the church too. First of all, some people within the context of the church in general think, well, everyone who possesses this desire chooses to do so. I've counseled with many people who struggle with same-sex attraction, who are in same-sex relationships. I've counseled with parents who have learned of the struggle that one of their children is having. I can tell you definitively that not everyone who struggles with this, with this desire chose to do so at 10 or 12 or 14 or 16. You know what? Many people can't recall a day in their lives when they did not have this struggle. You say, well, are you suggesting there's a gene, you know, like, like, like there's a certain disposition like, like there is toward substance abuse or, or, or other types of actions. No, there's, there's not, not a proven scientific gene for this, but, but I can tell you there is a spiritual gene for this and all other deviations. It's called sin and it's genetic and it impacts every single one of us. And if you just look at your life, I promise you there, there is something that you have struggled with from your earliest years. There is something that's been true of your life, like you've struggled with and, and, and you still struggle with it. And, and it's a common temptation for you and it's a common struggle for you. And as you look back on your life, you think, man, yeah, I've kind of always had that struggle. And I, I'm telling you, there are people who have same-sex attraction and desires and they've had those attractions and desires from their earliest of years. I've counseled with many who've said, I wish God would just take it away. I don't want it, but I have it. And, and, and so I, it's a wrong assumption in the church to think, well, everyone who possesses this desire reached a point at 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, where they said, I'm gonna experiment and now I'm gonna run into this. That is not the case for many people. We need to recognize that. Secondly, here's, here's an assumption. Everyone who possesses this desire wrestles with a desire that is similar to other desires and temptations. In other words, when you wrestle with something this profound, it's just like wrestling with everything else, you know, greed or anger or pride or, well, no, that's actually not the case. Listen, we, we need to understand that 
that, that when you struggle with same-sex attraction, it, it's not like struggling with, with anger or, okay, I'm, I'm gonna do my best not to, to rob a bank today kind of thing. Like, no, 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 no. This struggle is real for many people and, and, and it's, it's a profound struggle. Listen, for those of you today, those of you watching us online, those of you here with us at our Brandon campus who are struggling with this or who have struggled with this or you have children or family who are struggling with this, listen, I just, I just want you to understand you can't think of this struggle as you think of other struggles because as I talked about last week, sexual sin is unique. Any type of sexual sin, but certainly this one as well. Listen, given the emotional, physical, and spiritual dynamics of sexual engagement, the consequences for deviating from God's design are more pronounced. The struggle can be more significant. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And so in the church, we have to understand, first of all, that, that not everyone who struggles with this is, is you know, just choosing to struggle with it because, because that's, that's what they want. Secondly, we need to understand that this desire and this struggle, especially for those of you who, who have it and you've been wrestling with it, it it's not just like any other desire or struggle. It, it does run deep in your heart. It is, a, it is a significant issue, as is the case with any and all sexual sin. So, so there's a reason we talk about it in a way that is heightened and profound because it, it's a really significant struggle. Third, let me say this again, thinking through how the church in general has responded over the years. Everyone, here's an assumption. Everyone who possesses this desire or struggle is a raging liberal who watches CNN votes democratic, drives a hybrid, and confronts dissenters with hateful vengeance. This would probably best describe the kind of preaching I've heard over the years on this topic. <laughs> and I would submit to you that if you find someone cloaked in Christianity who is addressing the issue in this way, this person has never actually talked or counseled with someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction. In other words, it's easy to vilify others with whom you've never had a meaningful conversation. It's easy to speak the truth in a way to where you become the offense and not the truth. And we need to be very, very careful about that. Now, let me, let me just say, I mean, if you look around the landscape of, of our society on this issue, there is no question, I just wanna acknowledge this, there is no question that what some people were asking for 15 years ago, just in terms of tolerance, they are now demanding today in terms of full-blown acceptance. That is true. There is no question that there are individuals and groups who who deny the right of a baker to only engage clients with heterosexual unions according to their religious beliefs. There's no question there are movements in our educational system and our political system to, to require um, full-blown acceptance. There is no doubt that there are some individuals and groups who are pushing conformity at the expense of democracy. That is happening. I'm aware of that. To these individuals and groups 
who refuse to display a willingness to engage in meaningful dialogue or who will actually show true tolerance, we should apply the teaching of scripture that we do not cast pearls before swine and that we will not answer a fool according to his folly. And in other words, there are some people with whom you can't have a reasonable dialogue with. There, there are some people and there are some movements where you know what? we have to take a strong stand. And where we have that opportunity, we, we should absolutely jump in. In our democracies, we have opportunities to speak into our school systems and what's being taught is we have the opportunity to impact culture and society and what's being promoted. We should leverage our influence. I understand that. And there will be times when we'll just have to take a stand and let the chips fall where they may because we're dealing with people who have no interest in dialogue and who make no space for disagreement. And the scripture tells us that when we're engaging such people, you don't cast your pearls before a swine and you don't answer a fool according to his folly because there's no point. They're not open to a meaningful dialogue and discussion. But let me say this clearly. That is not everyone. And that's probably not most people around you in your circle of influence. Actually, there are many people around us today who are not angry extremists, but they're everyday men and women who are struggling with their own desires or they have friends or family members who are, or they've come through a generation now that's always seen this issue as normative and and they just don't know clearly what God's design is. They're open to a dialogue. They're open to conversation. They're open to a meaningful relationship. And listen to me, we can't, cannot stand in the way of those dialogues and conversations. Jesus has put the church on the earth to be salt and light. And so listen, I just want you to understand, not everyone that possesses this desire is a raging, angry person who's obstinate and threatening. No, there are actually many people who are struggling, they're hurting, they're confused, and they're open to a dialogue, they're open to a conversation. And then finally, this is another, I think, wrong assumption that the church has carried for years, that everyone who possesses this desire has heard clearly and compassionately from the church. Man, we know now this is not the case for two reasons. Number one, because we have a growing number of churches who I would argue have compromised the word of God and have embraced same-sex relationships as normative. And so part of the reason that the church has not been clear and compassionate in its response over the years because now we have a growing number of churches who are embracing this as normative. And we have a whole generation of young men and young women who are growing up in a culture where there are many, many churches they would say this is okay. Secondly, however, there are other churches who historically have maintained a posture of anger or self-righteousness. That's where I would say we have to do better. We have to understand, no, there are churches and a growing number of churches who have compromised their witness, but there's another segment of churches who have compromised their witness, not because they've compromised the truth, but because they've compromised their tone. And here we need to be mindful of the ministry of Jesus that was characterized by having both grace and truth. And both of those things are vitally important. John 1.14 says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've observed his glory. The glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Listen, for years, there've been some churches who have spoken against the, the modern sexual revolution with more cliches than compassion. And that's wrong. If you think 
that's standing on a soapbox shouting, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, is an effective witness for Jesus, you are sorely mistaken. I grew up in a church where I heard that statement. You've been around people who have made that statement. You maybe have been in churches that have made that statement. And it sounds good when you're preaching to the base, but it is a terrible witness when you're trying to evangelize the lost. And you're speaking to people with the real struggle that they're trying to understand and navigate. What we do is we prevent ourselves from having a hearing and a witness sometimes, not because what we believe is wrong, but how we go about communicating it is. What do we need? Grace and truth. If we only show conviction, we will fail to communicate the whole gospel by proving to be unloving hypocrites. If we only show compassion, we will fail to communicate the whole gospel by proving to be compromised pragmatists. Listen, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today, as it has always been the case, needs both grace and truth. If we only proclaim the truth without any interest in grace, then we will prove to be unloving hypocrites. If we, like many churches now, are compromising the truth in order to be effective in reaching people, then we will prove to be compromised pragmatists. We have to have both grace and truth. And understand that for many, especially in a younger generation today, they, they've only grown up in a world where the church hasn't had a unified coherent witness when it comes to same-sex attraction. And so we're gonna to seek to do better in general. And so then what, what should we think? What should, what should we believe? How should we respond? We, we understand there's some cultural arguments that really don't hold water. We understand that there are some liabilities with the church in general over the years that, that have been a hindrance. And so, and so what should we believe and how should we interact with the world around us? And this is what I call just a Christian understanding of same-sex attractions and relationships. And, and, and it all comes down to this simple principle I wanna show you from Romans 1 today. Here's the principle, that whenever we deviate from God's design, it always leads to dysfunction. If I had to summarize the Bible's teaching, God's will for you, your family, your relationships, and just, 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 just condense it into a statement, it's this. Whenever you deviate from God's design, it will lead to dysfunction. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 proves this. He talks about this. Let me, let me show you what he says just regarding the, man, the, the sin that runs deep in every society because the reality is our society is not unique. Listen to me. We're not the first society to, to have to deal with the rampant spread of, of, of sexual sin. We're not the first society that's had to deal with um, uh, political corruption. We're not the first society that's had to deal with, with a rising amount of greed and a lust for power. We're not the first society in the world that's ever dealt with that. There are many. And so Paul's addressing what is common to every person in every generation and every society. Here's what he says. But God shows his anger or his wrath from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. We talked about that the very first week of this series, that the God who created is the God who's communicated. 
For since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and and through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. And so they have no excuse for not knowing God. But of course, there are some who refuse to acknowledge God. They say we're here as a result of aliens or stardust, right? And and so Paul says they're without excuse. You, You have to do a lot of philosophical gymnastics to arrive at the conclusion that we're here through aliens or stardust as opposed to the work of an intelligent designer, okay? Paul's saying, no, 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 it's out there. Look, look around, you can see it, okay? And he says, even though people knew God, they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas for what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise, they, 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 um, became instead utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And so here's a part of God's judgment in the world today. It's not his full judgment, but it's a partial judgment. God therefore has abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desire. And as a result, they do vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth of God for a lie. And so they worship and serve the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. And he says, that's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Now, what does it look like? Now he's gonna give us some examples, okay? He says, there are, there are women who've turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulge in sex with each other. And, and the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. And since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and he let them do the things that they never should have done. And so their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, but they do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Paul's describing the state of our world. And there's a progression here. Let me show it to you. First of all, I want you to see that That sin, the presence of sin in our world, the presence of sin in your heart leads us to first of all, reject the truth. You can't talk about same-sex attraction and relationships without understanding that, that all of us first and foundationally reject the truth of God. Everyone knows the truth about God just as everyone can see God's glory and the beauty and the complexity of life and creation, but we push against that truth and we seek to govern ourselves. Sin leads us to reject the truth. Secondly then, then it leads us to refuse to worship. You say, I mean, I'm not dumb enough to worship a a, a wood idol of a snake or something. I mean, I'm, no, 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 no. You, you may not worship that like some do around the world, but you know what? You're worshiping something that is of your own design. Ambition, greed, power, something. Identity, security, family. There, there's something that, that you've pushed into your entire life that makes you feel 
fulfilled and valued apart from God. Here's what happens. Paul's saying, sin leads us to reject the truth about God and his rightful rule and place in our lives. And as a result, every single one of us has a worship problem. That's the number one problem we have. The number one problem we have is a worship problem. You know what we do? Every single one of us, we set up things to worship that we can control so that we can ultimately get what we want. That's how this works. Why did Adam and Eve sin against God in a perfect world? I'll tell you why. Because through temptation, they became convinced that God was preventing them from becoming gods themselves. Big mistake. And now every single one of us make the same mistake. Our number one problem is, is a worship problem. We set up something to worship that we can control so that ultimately we get what we want. And this leads us thirdly, here, notice the progression then, then we respect our desires. We lean into our desires. We elevate our desires. And here is what Paul is saying to you and me today, that, that an aspect of God's judgment is that he withdraws the restraining power of his Holy Spirit and he lets us do what we want to do. I have thought about with my own children at times when they were young, withdrawing my restraining grace. Oh, you think you'd be better off on your own? Go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll drive you to the middle of nowhere and drop you off. See how long you last. Oh, that phone? Oh, no, no, I bought that phone. No, no, you don't get to take the phone with you. Yeah, yeah, no. Oh, yeah, right. He, he, I just want you to understand, this is actually very, very sobering. Like Paul's saying, notice the progression. We reject the truth. We, we create things to worship that we control so we can get what we want. And then as a means of God's judgment, God withdraws his restraining spirit and he lets us have what we desire. All right, you want it, you can have it. And if you wanna know in a nutshell why our world is so messed up, it's because God has allowed us to have what we wanted. And what's the number one evidence of this dysfunction? Sexual sin. Listen to me. Paul's not picking on homosexuality here. He's not picking on those of you who have struggled or currently struggle with same-sex attraction. That's not the point. He, he mentions this right out of the gate as a clear indication that, that such desires are opposed to God's plan and purpose for you because it, it is so unnatural. In the same way that we unnaturally war against God to worship what we can control, he's saying when God withdraws the restraining of his spirit, we engage in unnatural relationships with other human beings. So that men wanna be with men and women wanna be with women. He, he's saying this is an aspect of God's judgment so that he allows us to have what we want because all of us have desires. And Paul isn't in there. He, listen, he's, he's not saying homosexuality is the only evidence of this. He's saying it's the most pronounced evidence of this. But there are other evidences like what? Greed, other forms of lust, anger, being rebellious, disobedient to parents. Right? He's like, he's given a whole list. If, if, if you went through that whole list and you weren't impacted by something, you need to do a serious self-evaluation because something in that list hits you and it hit me. 
And so what he's trying to say is we have a worship problem and therefore we have a desire problem. And what happens is sin leads us to lean into our desires so that we listen more to them than we do the will and the word of God. And every time we do that, we go against his design and that leads us to dysfunction. And he even goes on to say, even though we know these things are going to end up to our harm and our detriment, we do them anyway. And we even give improvement to others who do them as well. Let me just condense that for you in case you're, you're looking for simplicity, more simplicity here. Sin will make you stupid. It will make you stupid. Say, why do sometimes I do things I do? Why do people, because sin makes you stupid. It blinds you to the reality of the consequences of sinful desire. And you think, you think, ah, I won't get caught. That won't happen to me. When I get to the end of my life, God's gonna see a whole army of people that are far worse than me and give me a pass. And I got news for you, there are no hall passes in the judgment. But we reject the truth. We worship what we can control so we get what we want. And then we start respecting our own desires, living according to our own desires. And that puts us into greater dysfunction. And if you're wrestling with same-sex desires today, I want you to understand that I get that that struggle is real, that it runs deep, that it may have been with you for a very long time from your earliest years. But I wanna encourage you to keep fighting against it, to keep warring against it. It's not easy. It's incredibly difficult for the reasons I've outlined as, as overcoming any sexual sin is. But I can promise you it'll be worth it. If you're here today and you're struggling with any other desire, that's on this list. I want you to hear me say, I get it. We're all in the same boat. But if we think that we can give in to our sinful, selfish desires without consequence and without dysfunction, we are deceiving ourselves. And just because you become a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that those sinful desires go away. And the New Testament refers to this as the old man. When you become a Christ follower, you're like born again. Jesus says it's new life, it's new birth. There's a new man. But this side of heaven, the old man is still nagging at the new man. And there'll be some desires, even as a Christ follower, they're gonna stay with you. Don't give in to them. The old man is not for you, he's against you. And those desires will never go away. Just because you get married doesn't mean that you'll never desire another beautiful person, Right? If my wife like ever came home from the beach and said, hey, honey, I just want you to know, like I'm seeing all these hunks and muscle men at the beach and all that. And I'm just, I, I just want you to know I'm moving into an open relationship. I would say two things. First of all, I'd be like, honey, I have muscle underneath my skeletal structure. It's there. Like, come on, like I have muscle too. You just can't see it, but it's there. And then the second thing I would say is, I honestly don't know that I could say it from the stage, but 
uh, it would be upsetting. Like, no, you don't give in to your desire, right? I mean, if I went to her and said, hey, honey, I was at Golf Galaxy yesterday, and I mean, I could really use a new set of clubs, and I got some woods and some irons and some wedges and a new putter and a bag that matches because that's important. And um, I just want you to, I put it all on a credit card. I got a new credit card. And I, you know, so I you know, put us in debt. I know we can't afford it, but, but you know, I really felt the Lord moved that this is gonna help my golf game. You know, I know what she would say to me. I know what my lovely wife would say to me. She would say, Corey, You will give an account for this one day when you stand in the judgment before Dave Ramsey. I know exactly what she would say, <laughs> right? Just because you have a desire doesn't mean that that desire is for your good and your best interest. Let me say this one more time. Deviation from God's design always leads to dysfunction. And even if you're with us today and you or a member of your family, maybe one or two of your friends are struggling with same-sex attraction, understand the source of it. It's the source of every other sin. It's a rejection of the truth. It's a willingness to worship that which you can control so you can get what you want that ultimately will put you in a place where you're leaning more into your desires than you are the will and the purposes of God, which finally, Paul, you notice this, it leads into a radicalization of our behavior. Man, that's where we are today. Sexual perversions, economic perversions, social perversions, spiritual perversions, family perversions. Paul outlines all of them for us. Again, he's not picking on homosexuality here. He's not picking on anything. He's just, he's saying that, that yes, the exchange in our sexuality and all the sexual deviancy we see in the world today, it's evidence that we have a worship problem. It's evidence that we've given into our desires more than God's design. And, and when we do, what it leads to is a radicalization of our behavior, a world that's messed up, a people who are messed up. And so, and so here's the thing. We're all there in some form or fashion. But specifically, if you are someone that you know and love and care about or struggling with same-sex attraction, unequivocally, I have to tell you, because I love and I care for you and them, that that is not consistent with God's design. But I want you to hear me on this. There is hope and there is help available. There is a path forward that's gonna involve a fight, but also greater fulfillment. That's true of same-sex attraction. It's true of every temptation that we wrestle with. But, but here's the thing. I can't help you with that today. I can't heal you today. I, I'm a fellow human being. A little bit of special training and education and experience, but you know what? I'm a fellow human being. The reality is I can't fully help you and I can't fully heal you but thankfully, I know a man who can, and his name is Jesus. Because as a fellow broken human being, let me tell you what I've learned by God's grace. We can't fix ourselves. The only hope for us has to come outside of us. And that's precisely what God has done by sending Jesus, his son, our savior, into the world to live, to die for our sin, our consequences, to, to be raised from the dead, to accomplish victory and then through his spirit now and through the hope of heaven to live in such a way that guess what? Here's what Jesus does. We accept the truth. 
No longer do we reject the truth. No, we accept the truth. Through Jesus, then what do we have? Meaningful worship. What was broken by rejecting the truth and worshiping what we want? No, here's what Jesus does. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus leads us to meaningful worship of God, which is what we are made for. Jesus then leads us to control our desires, to live according to the new man and not the old. And then Jesus leads us to positive behavior where we're living not selfishly or sinfully, but we're living for the benefit of others. And we're living in a way that honors and glorifies him. And we're living in a way that brings about the good, the glory of God in the world. This is what Jesus can do for you today. This is what he will do if you look to him, if you call upon him. And if you're here, you've never asked Jesus into your life. You've never asked him to forgive you. You've never asked him to save you. I urge you to do that today because only Jesus can bring the hope and the healing that you need. With same-sex attraction and struggle or any struggle you have today. Because through Jesus, there is victory. Which is why Paul concluded kind of a little section of his, his statement on sexuality this way. I love this. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves, right? He says, those who indulge in sexual sin or those who worship idols or those who commit adultery or male prostitutes or those who practice homosexuality, he continues, or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or those who are abusive or cheat others. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me give you a good word here. He said, such were some of you. Some of you were like that. Let's not pretend like we all walked in this room with no brokenness in our lives. Let's not pretend like we walked in this room, we've always had it all together. You say, well, I pretty much always had it together. You know, God saved me when I was six years old. Good, he saved you from what you would have been. And some of you walked in this room like I did. You, You were saved old enough to where your testimony is, God saved me from what I was. But whether God saved you from what you were or he saved you from what you would have been, your testimony today is such were some of us. We were given over to same-sex attraction and desires. We were greedy. We were selfish. We were arrogant. We abused our power. But then we met Jesus. And Jesus changed us. That's our testimony today. That's our testimony. Not come to Bell Shoals and see a group of people got it all together. We're not here to give seminars and TED Talks about how how God miraculously put a bunch of people together that had it all together. We're here to testify to the grace and the life-changing power of Jesus because he's the only one who can bring that kind of change and that hope. That's why we're here today. So if you're struggling, and I know some of you are, if you have family who are, children who are, grandchildren who are, and some of you are in that situation, I can't bring the healing that you need or your family needs, but I can point you to the one who can bring that healing. His name is Jesus.